Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. The 2024 Academy Awards will be held on March 10th, 2024, and it's celebrating the best movies of 2023. And right now, I am actually prepping for my show for next week, which is where I reveal what I think will win and also what I think should win various Academy Awards. So it's going to be a show that involves a lot of preparation. For right now, I'm going to do what I usually do, which is review all the movies that I've seen so far. There's one huge movie that came out this weekend, this weekend being March 1st through March 3rd, 2024. And the other ones are ones that I haven't quite gotten around to yet, but I'm getting around to them for this show. But I'm going to start right from the top. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dune Part 2. This is, of course, the sequel to the 2021 film Dune, which got a lot of people back in theaters and also was the winner of six Academy Awards, all of which were technical, but also all of which were very well-deserved. And I said previously that Dune was one of the best films of 2021, and I still stand by that. And I also stand by the fact that it was a huge cry from David Lynch's 1984 film. And Dune Part 2 is continuing on with that tradition of making a very high-quality film set in the Dune universe. Denis Villeneuve is back to direct and also back to star, uh, our stars including... Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and Rebecca Ferguson, amongst others. There are other actors in here, some of whom are reprising their roles from the original 2021 Dune, and others who are new to this film, such as Austin Butler, Florence Pugh, Christopher Walken, and a few others. And there is a lot of backstory. For instance... We know that Paul Atreides from the end of the last film is presumed dead by the people on Arrakis as well as some of his enemies who are hunting for him. But what he's actually doing is he is hiding out with the Freemen who are in a deserted planet. And Timothy Chalamet is Paul Atreides, of course. His mother, Lady Jessica, who's played by Rebecca Ferguson, is also with him. And, of course, Paul Atreides and Shani, who is a young Freeman warrior played by Zendaya, are both in the same tribe, and they're also very much in love. And also, th- there, are very, uh, there are various other plot threads that are going on here. I'll try not to get into them too much, but I also find that I have to break my previous rule of spoilers because... Dune Part 2 picks up exactly where the original 2021 movie Dune left off. And while it's tempting to tell you all the plot threads and all the various characters and their character arcs, I can't do that because that would take me a very, very long time. But I will tell you that these plot threads are very intriguing. This movie is nearly three hours long. It's, it's exactly uh, two hours, 45 minutes. And I didn't think there was a dull moment in this film at all. I thought that the panoramic 
cinematography was amazing. Even though throughout a vast majority of the film, all you see is desert, it's not at all boring, especially when you consider the human drama that's going on here that's acted very well by Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya alone. They anchor the film very well. But many of the other supporting actors in here, including some that are reprising their roles from the previous film, like Javier Bardem, also anchor this film very well. But now that we know that there are sandworms that terrorize this planet that's made out of sand, that has sand in it, the, the question here now is what do the Freeman tribe as well as Paul Atreides do about these worms? But it's not only worms that are the antagonists here. But the journey of Paul Atreides as he goes from being a prince on a very affluent planet to blending in with the Freeman troops in a deserted planet is very intriguing, especially when you see how he kind of earns his rite of passage by handling these sandworms. And I won't exactly get into exactly what happens, but it's probably one of the most fascinating parts of this film. And there are various other characters who endure story arcs as well. It's hard to say exactly who is a protagonist without spoiling too much, but or rather who's an antagonist without spoiling too much. But there is one primary antagonist besides the sandworms who comes in the form of Fade Ratha Harkonnen, who's played here by a barely recognizable Austin Butler, who doesn't look like he did in the film Elvis. As a matter of fact, he pro- it, it took me a little while to figure out that it was him, and I didn't fully figure it out until the end credits, but he is the youngest nephew of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, and he is a, a true intergalactic gladiator who also has a showdown at the very end with Paul Atreides, and the way that showdown is choreographed is mesmerizing. And there are some various plot threads here that I didn't quite understand. I did lose track of the characters. And that's largely because, truth be told, I haven't read all of the first book. But as it turns out, Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Lady Jessica, Paul Atreides' mother, hasn't entirely read the book either. So if you go in this film, see it, and you're kind of lost here and there, you're not particularly alone. As a matter of fact, I think the ending of the film, the last third of the film, was probably where I got lost the most because I was wondering towards the end, what are Paul Atreides' ambitions and what is he sacrificing to make these ambitions real? And also at what cost? There are some answers that are given to you in the movie and there are some that aren't. And there are also some very interesting cameos in here as well, but there are going to be more questions that are going to be answered in the third cut, but I was absolutely impressed with this part two of the series, very much like The Empire Strikes Back and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Dune part two ends on a very questionable note and also one where it seems like some of the antagonists may have won a certain battle, but what happens at the end of the war is answered in one of the sequels, which will undoubtedly be answered in Dune part three. And there might even be a Dune part four at this point. 
My my chief complaint with Dune Part 2, though, is the title of the film, Dune Part 2. I think there could have been, very much like The Empire Strikes Back and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, there could have been a, a better Frank Herbert-influenced title for this film, but I really can't complain. It says what it is for what it is, but the acting, the choreography, the cinematography, the special effects are top-notch. This probably would have been a film that would have been better released in the holiday season, especially getting ready for this Academy Awards season, but it's likely that the writer's strike and the SAG-AFTRA strike caused this film to be delayed, and it's not the only one, but it's still a very enjoyable romp, not to mention a very metaphysical and philosophical film that's worth seeing probably again despite its running time, and I give Dune Part 2 my rating of a knockout. It's a lot of desert, it's a lot of dryness, but the story itself isn't dry, and neither is the acting by everyone in this large ensemble cast, including a couple of surprising cameos here and there. But Dune Part 2 is definitely well worth the watch, and I highly recommend it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Drive Away Dolls. And there is an on-screen title that it has that I'm not exactly sure is, I I can say, on the air. But the on-screen title is shown at the very end. But this is a movie that came out. On February 22nd, uh, 2024, in the Western world in the United States. And it is directed by Ethan Cohen. And this is Ethan Cohen's debut as a solo director. His previous directorial efforts has been with his brother, Joel Cohen. And together, from 1984 to 2018, they directed 18 films. And as I said... Why Joel Cohen didn't decide, didn't work with Ethan Cohen on this film, I don't exactly know. But Ethan Cohen wrote the screenplay with his wife, Trisha Cook, and they also produced the film with Robert Graff and working titles Tim Bevan and Eric Fellner. Now, this is a film that is a straight up comedy, but when you know that Ethan Cohen's directed it, you can see some comparisons between some other. Coen Brothers films. And one thing you could say about the Coen Brothers is they have enough clout in Hollywood as well as the independent film scene where they can and they have made pretty much any movie they want to. And they have the same kind of clout that Woody Allen has. The only difference is that they haven't unofficially been canceled. And hopefully that doesn't happen for the Coen Brothers because they make amazing films. But the point I'm trying to make here is this that the Coen brothers have some excellent films, some of the greatest films of all time that they've directed, and some haven't quite adjusted to people's tastes. 
And I could go over the films that are the greatest and some that aren't. But one thing you can say about the Coen brothers is that none of their films that they've made have been quite like the other ones that have preceded them. And Drive Away Dolls, I can't exactly say the same thing for. And as a matter of fact, there are scenes here and there that I think were done better, actually, in previous Coen Brothers films. And there are also some other plot threads and character developments that I think have been done in other unique American films. And Pulp Fiction in particularly came to mind here. But the movie takes place in 1999, And what's kind of mysterious about this is that it's very much like Madam Web taking place in 2003. No one really knows exactly why they took place 20 plus years ago, but at the same time, I guess that's up to the creative prerogative of the writers. So there are some instances where I think that it taking place in 1999 probably wouldn't have been as believable in terms of its plot developments if it were to take place in in modern day, 2023 or 2024, especially with the advent of cell phones and GPS devices and what have you. But the movie is about these two women who happen to be lesbians. One is a free-spirited womanizer, and the other one is a friend of hers who is professional and not quite as laid back. So they are opposites, and they have had previous liaisons before, but one is wary of another, uh, another one of them, and they are on a trip to Tallahassee, Florida, and they head into a drive-away car service where someone can transport a car one way for another client. But due to a misunderstanding, they're given a car that someone else has already booked for a trip to Tallahassee. And the women who are here who are taking this road trip to Tallahassee are Jamie, that's the lesbian womanizer who's played by Margaret Qualley, and her more wound-up friend, Marion, who's played by Geraldine Viswanathan. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correct. But moments later, a group of three criminals whose names are Arliss, Flint, and Chief, Arliss played by Joey Slotnick, Chief played by Coleman Domingo, and Flint played by C.J. Wilson, go to this drive-away car service to find that they picked up the wrong car. So... They are, these three criminals are after Jamie and Marion, particularly because of the cargo that's in the back seat. And part of the cargo is in a silver suitcase. And I won't reveal to you what's in that silver suitcase, but I will say that you find out some halfway through the film and it feels like a, a cheap laugh in addition to the fact that the contents of the suitcase unlike in Fargo, in No Country for Old Men, and even Pulp Fiction, is not something that I would think criminals would be tripping over themselves to find. As a matter of fact, the two criminals in this film, the or rather two out of the three, uh, Arliss and Flint, played by Joey Slotnick and C.J. Wilson, almost seem to be kind of carbon copies of the two henchmen in Fargo. And there's one henchman here that the reason I say that who like Steve Buscemi's character uh, is known for his 
gift of gab and he talks a lot. And the other one is not quite as much of a talker, but is more of the muscle and he's the one you don't want to mess with. That sounds exactly like Fargo. But one of the plot devices of Fargo is that there's a silver suitcase with money in it. And unlike Pulp Fiction, you know what's in the suitcase, but it makes it all the more intriguing, both what the criminals do with the suitcase, as well as some missed opportunities on their end that have very savage consequences. And here in Driveway Doll, the consequences don't seem as consequential. And some of them seem even a little predictable, not to mention that there are things that the three criminals do to the two ladies once they catch up with them that seem kind of counterintuitive to what their mission is. And also the way that Jamie and Marion react to what kind of loot that they have in addition to what they do with it also doesn't seem particularly smart either. Although I will say that Margaret Qualley and Geraldine Viswanathan act very well together, first as semi-adversaries, but then eventually they take a liking to one another, and there are some steaming hot love scenes that are actually make this film a little bit more worth watching. But the contents of the suitcase and the the, the things that the criminals do, even once they obtain the suitcase themselves don't really add up. And there is a, there's a conspiracy that leads up to a Senator channel who's played by Matt Damon, who plays a smug Republican and one very well. And the contents of the suitcase involve some experimentation that he did in the sixties, which is actually based on a true story about one particularly ambitious artist who's also portrayed loosely here by someone who makes a very notable cameo here. But at the same time, I think the driveway dolls did have its dull moments in the very beginning, but once it picked up the motivations of the protagonist and antagonist didn't really make a lot of sense in the grand scheme of things. And driveway dolls may or may not have needed the, talents of Joel Cohen, but I, I think that Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, when they work together, they at least stay on track. Their senses of humor are not to everyone's taste, as is demonstrated by some of their comedy films that have stood the test of time, like The Big Lebowski, and others that haven't quite the same way, like Hail Caesar. But the point is that I'm kind of surprised that Ethan Cohen kind of dipped into some of his own previous directorial cliche plot points, or at least when he repeats them, they become cliche and made what was otherwise not particularly impressive comedy. Also, when you find out the alternative title on screen from uh, at the very end, from drive away dolls to drive away something else. It's not a particularly funny revelation, and it's not likely to make anyone laugh, even the ones who stay during the credits. So Driveway Dolls had some moments where it worked. I think the two lead ladies worked very well together. I even liked uh, Joey Slotnick and some of the sharp lines that he had. 
But overall, there is a cameo at the very end, or the very beginning, I should say, with um, one star who's actually credited on the poster, but he's only in the movie for about three minutes. Considering how much of a rising star he is and how much of a household name he's becoming, he really didn't deserve to be taken out of the movie as quickly as he ultimately did. So Drive Away Dolls gets my rating of a strikeout. I think it's a movie that has its funny moments. It certainly has its steamy, enticing moments. But overall, it's a film that takes a lot of elements from better films. And when you, it's especially better films from the Coen brothers. And once you are able to pinpoint and identify what those other films are, you probably want to just stop this film and watch those other movies. And I don't blame you for doing so. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Ordinary Angels. This is a film that is semi-faith-based, but unlike most faith-based films, it's very good. And it's directed by John Gunn, who has previously directed a number of non-faith-based films, like My Date with Drew, which was a film that he directed, a documentary he directed back in 2004, which was a fun, lighthearted documentary. But he also made a name for himself in recent years directing faith-based films like Do You Believe, which is a Christian film that I actually added to my list of the worst films of 2015. He also directed The Case for Christ from 2017, which I did not see, as well as another film called I Still Believe which is not exactly an, an... Oh, he actually didn't direct that. He produced it. But this is his first directorial effort since 2017's The Case for Christ. And it does have some religious elements to it. But overall, I don't think that people who avoid faith-based films like The Plague would avoid this film. But this film stars Hilary Swank as a hairdresser by the name of Sharon Stevens, and she is actually a real-life hairdresser who, in 1993 and 1994, rallied her community of Louisville, Kentucky to help a widowed father save the life of his critically ill young daughter. And the climax of this film happens when Louisville is hit by a major snowstorm from the 1994 North American cold wave. And I remember that wave very well because when I was living in Maine, where I was living and growing up, that cold wave not only dumped a lot of snow on Kentucky, it also dumped a lot of snow on Maine. And the reason I remember that is because it happened on January 17th, 1994. And that was the day that the California earthquake happened. It was also Martin Luther King Day. But I also remember that the next day, January 18th, their school was canceled. And yeah, I could go on about what, what I remember about that week, but I'll just stick to this movie right now. But Sharon Stevens, as portrayed by Hillary Swank, is a woman who knows how to party. And at her age, being in her late 40s, 
that is not quite as good a thing as it would be in if she were in college. But she is eventually forced to attend an AA meeting with the help of her friend Rose, who's played by Tamala Jones. And eventually she finds out about a roofer in her town by the name of Ed Schmidt, who's played by Alan Richson, who she finds out who has a daughter who needs a liver transplant or else she'll remain sick. And Ed Schmidt is very introverted. He cares about his family very much, but is especially protective of his daughters because his wife also died earlier after giving birth to their youngest daughter, who's the one who needs a liver transplant. And Hilary Swank's character, Sharon Stevens, still has issues with alcohol, but she also makes it her mission to be as much service to the Schmidt family as she can. And these efforts are very much appreciated by the two daughters and their grandmother, Barbara, who's played by Nancy Travis, who I wouldn't have guessed would have been playing a grandmother, but I guess she's of that age. So whatever, I'll give her a pass. (laughs) It's possible being in her late fifties, she would be a grandmother, but anyway, moving on here, but Ed Schmidt rather, excuse me, Alan Richson played by Ed Schmidt is not quite as receptive and you can tell as the movie is progressing what he what his reservations are and also how the the two of them don't quite see eye to eye on various things including getting the, his family the help that they need but i i did like the fact that unlike other john gunn directed films like Do You Believe and The Case for Christ, Ordinary Angels is probably one of the best faith-based films that I've seen in the sense that there are some faith-based messages in here, but it doesn't hit you over the head with them. And also, it doesn't say that if you devote every single fiber of your existence to the cause of God and Jesus Christ and tell everyone around you basically be a missionary about the word of God, then you might as well be a fire breathing Satanist. If you're not with us, you're against us. And I like the fact that the character of Sharon Stevens isn't religious or even really spiritual. Although she later joins Alcoholics Anonymous, which has a spiritual component to it. You don't necessarily have to believe in the Christian God in order to join AA, but there there is a message about a higher power. But the point is that Ordinary Angels is a fascinating film about how much a person can change another person's life for the better if they're ever so committed. But it doesn't also shy away from the fact that sometimes some charitable work isn't necessarily welcome. But the climax of this film that takes place on January 17th, 1994, the day of the North American cold wave, as well as the unrelated earthquake that happens in California, that's not mentioned in this film. I just thought I'd put that out there as a fact. But in any event, the climax of this film, even though it's probably dramatized, works very well, and it also had me on the edge of my seat which is a lot more than I could say for a lot of other faith-based films. And Hilary Swank acts incredibly well in the lead here. And as it turns out, 
Hillary Swank took the title or rather the lead role in this film because her father who passed away a few years ago was a received a lung transplant from a donor. So she certainly has the wherewithal to know about the importance and the life-saving changes of organ donations. And this film does have a little public service announcement at the end about the importance of organ donations. But unlike some other faith-based films or films with agenda, it doesn't feel like propaganda. It feels like a, a human story that I enjoyed, and it certainly had its climax as well as plot developments that may have been dramatized but seemed realistic. But Ordinary Angels gets my rating of a knockout. I loved Hilary Swank in this movie. I think she had a level-headed performance. And also, it's a film where it shows you that getting help as well as giving help is is altruistic, yes. And there are going to be people in this world who don't see eye to eye, even if you're, even if you have good intentions, but ultimately it shows the power that one person has to change the life of somebody who really needs it. So I commend ordinary angels for that reason. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. For the Academy Awards that are coming up, I've reviewed nine out of the ten Best Picture nominees, but I haven't reviewed one of them until now. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Maestro. This is a film that was released in limited release to theaters on November 22nd, 2023, before being released on Netflix on December 20th, 2023. And it is a film that you can see on Netflix right now and probably for the foreseeable future because I don't think Netflix takes off its originals, although I could be wrong about that. But critically acclaimed originals, it probably just keeps them. But anyway, Maestro is a film that is a biopic about Leonard Bernstein who was affectionately known as Maestro, and the term Maestro fits him very well because by definition, Maestro is a distinguished musician, especially a conductor of classical music, which of course, Leonard Bernstein, excuse me, Leonard Bernstein was. He was an American compo- composer, conductor, pianist, music educator, author, and humanitarian, and is considered to be one of the most important conductors of his time. And he was the first American-born conductor to receive international acclaim. And not only was he known very well in the classical music world, but he was probably also the first American classical music composer to be known by people who 
did not know classical music quite as well. So he was a celebrity well beyond his genre. And one of the biggest parts, one of the biggest reasons because of that was because Leonard Bernstein was among the first classical music aficionados who saw the power of television and used that to create interest in classical music amongst laymen or people who didn't know Franz Liszt from Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And he did that very well and made a name for himself. And this film is about not only Leonard Bernstein and his rise to fame, but also his relationship with his wife, Felicia Montalegra, who's played here by Carrie Mulligan. And the two of them work very well together. They have excellent chemistry, and not just romantic chemistry, but also when things in their life go awry, they have chemistry when it comes to the bad things that happen to them as well. There's also a notable supporting performance here that wasn't critically as well received, but I still thought it was noteworthy. Sarah Silverman plays Leonard Bernstein's sister, Shirley Bernstein, who is a confidant both to her brother and also to his wife, Felicia. But some of the bad things that happen in there, in the relationship between Leonard and Felicia is when Leonard Bernstein is revealed to be bisexual. And I do think the film gets a little into the gossipy part of Leonard Bernstein's life, but the parts where Bradley Cooper, who plays Leonard Bernstein, is committed and dedicated to his classical music are probably amongst the best scenes in this film, especially one scene where he is conducting an orchestra in a cathedral. And it is one continuous shot that doesn't break until the scene ends. But the way that Bradley Cooper is immersed in his conducting is really amazing. And it looked exactly like Leonard Bernstein would publicly conduct an orchestra as well. And there was a little bit of initial controversy with Bradley Cooper portraying Leonard Bernstein where he fastened a prosthetic nose in order to portray Leonard Bernstein. And the controversy, at least initially, is that Leonard Bernstein was Jewish, hence his last name, and Bradley Cooper isn't. And there is one of those negative stereotypes about Jewish people having big noses. But the Jewish Anti-Defamation League didn't have a problem with it, and Leonard Bernstein's family, with whom Bradley Cooper collaborated on this film also didn't have a problem with it for that reason. I don't have a problem with it either. Actually, if anything, this movie shows that Bradley Cooper didn't just do this movie to get an Oscar nod, although he got it and it was well-deserved, but he also had a passion and appreciation for Leonard Bernstein as evidenced by the fact that Bradley Cooper not only stars in this film as Leonard Bernstein, but he directed the film, he co-wrote the screenplay with Josh Singer, and he also served as one of the producers along with Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Christy Makosko Krieger, Fred Berner, and Amy Durning. A lot of big names, a lot of huge names in the film world. But 
some actors, particularly when they're directing themselves in lead roles, don't do as well a job when they're acting and directing simultaneously. Ben Affleck comes especially to mind here, but Bradley Cooper did an impressive performance here, and his directing didn't seem to hinder his performance either. There's also a neat cameo by Snoopy here, which is in one of the best scenes in this film, but it's not because of the Snoopy cameo. It's just, it's a a neat cameo here that uh, is, is welcome and also critically acclaimed. So Maestro is a film that is a bit unconventional when it comes to the story of Leonard Bernstein. I think I might have liked to have seen some of... Leonard Bernstein growing up and maybe his initial introduction to classical music and how he got into that. You won't find the answers to that here. I would have liked to have seen that, but I'm not taking away from my enjoyment of the film. I do think it is one of the best films of the year. It didn't make my top 10, but it probably would have made my top 20. And I give Maestro my rating of a knockout. It was definitely deserving of all the Oscar nods that it received. I don't exactly know if it's going to win Best Picture. My guess is it probably won't, but it is an excellent film, and I do commend Bradley Cooper for his acting job here, not to mention the supporting performances by Carrie Mulligan, who also received a nod, and Sarah Silverman, who didn't, but still turned in a an excellent performance here in one of her few films where she's acting dramatically as well. But Maestro is a film that is very well composed and also very well worth watching. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for this show, it's now time for me to come up to do my segment, What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are coming out in theaters or are subject to come out in theaters for the week of March 4th through March 8th. 2024. I'll get to the movies that are streaming if I have time, but I also have to say that none of these films I'm going to be reviewing for next week's show because next week's show is going to be my Oscar recap, or rather my Oscar predictions. It's part if I pick the winners, and it's also the movies that I think will win. So I really have to do my homework for this upcoming show. But it's going to be a really good show, and I hope you stay tuned for it. But in the meantime, these are films that I will eventually review. It's just not going to be for next week's show and not for the week after because the first week is who I think or what I think will win or should win, and the next week is going to be what I thought of the actual winners. I'm going to go gloat about the predictions that I made and also really just go on a tirade about the predictions that I got wrong. I'm being facetious about the latter point, but you know, my point is sometimes there are some passionate choices that I have that if they don't win, I get kind of annoyed, but regardless, 
Here's what's coming up next. One of the biggest movies to come out in theaters or subject to be released on March 8th is a film that's called Imaginary. And this is a film that is brought to you from Blumhouse. And I've been pronouncing this Blumhouse, but apparently I've heard other people in the media refer to the company as Blumhouse and the producer who founded it as Jason Blum. So I'm going to call it Blumhouse from now on, unless Jason Blum tells me, dude, my last name is Bloom, get it right. I don't know if he will. My show's not that big yet, but maybe. But it looks like Bloom, but regardless, Blumhouse, who last year brought us some quality horror films like Megan and some less than quality films like Five Nights at Freddy's. But this movie is telling you on the poster that it's from the production company who brought you Five Nights at Freddy's and Megan, One horror movie that was great, another movie that was boring, but both of them were box office hits. But Imaginary is a film that has a teddy bear on the poster, and when you see the poster, you'll see that this teddy bear is not quite cuddly. As a matter of fact, the characters at Freddy Fazbear's in Five Nights at Freddy's are much more cuddly in comparison, so that tells you a lot. But anyway... Imaginary is about a woman who returns to her childhood home to discover that the imaginary friend she left behind is very real and unhappy that she abandoned him. So this movie is like Drop Dead Fred if Drop Dead Fred was a horror film. But hopefully it's better than Drop Dead Fred because with all due respect to Rick Mayall, who played the titular character, that movie was terrible. It kind of tried to be a kid's film and an adult film at the same time. And by adult film, I mean kind of to PG-13 or R-rated sentimentalities, not to triple X. But in, in pleasing everyone, it ended up pleasing no one. But Imaginary knows what it wants to be. It is presumably rated R, and it's a film that I will see, and I will review it for you on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a film that's called Kung Fu Panda 4. And this is a film that I definitely will see because I loved the first Kung Fu Panda movie. And I liked its two sequels as well. I think I gave Kung Fu Panda 3 my rating of a knockout. And I enjoyed that one. But in this film, Jack Black is back as Poe, who is set to become the spiritual leader of the Valley of Peace. And he searches for his successor as the new dragon warrior while fighting a new shape-shifting foe called... The Chameleon, who, knowing the universe of Kung Fu Panda, is probably an actual comedian. A chameleon, excuse me. Not actually uh, voiced by a comedian, by the way. So as I said, Jack Black returns as Poe. Dustin Hoffman uh, returns as the Red Panda Master Shifu, who is Poe's wise and reluctant master. You also have Ian McShane coming back as Tai Lung, who is a snow leopard. But interestingly enough, the other members of the Furious Five are not coming back for this sequel. So kind of interesting there. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen Tigress played by Angelina Jolie in this role. And I think it's one of Angelina Jolie's best films, the original Kung Fu Panda. But there are some other creatures in this film who are voiced by the likes of Aquafina, who seems to be in every animated movie these days. Brian Cranston, who I believe was in Kung Fu Panda 3. 
You also have James Hong reprising his role as Mr. Ping, who is Poe's adopted Chinese goose father, and also Kehui Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once, just like James Hong was in that film. He plays a Sunda Pangolin, who is the leader of A Den of Thieves. So it's good for this film to have some Asian and some Asian-American voice actors in it. Actually, kind of unlike the original Kung Fu Panda, but... Kung Fu Panda 4 is a film I'm looking forward to seeing. I'm not necessarily saying it's going to be as great as the original Kung Fu Panda, but I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's subject to being released in theaters on March 8th is a film that's called Cabrini. And this is the story of Francesca Cabrini, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of the 19th century who began with nothing and created a large multinational charitable empire. Now, this sounds like a very intriguing film. It's certainly about a very intriguing subject, especially considering that, truth be told, I don't know anything about Francesca Cabrini, but it's likely that this film will teach me about her. But anyway, it star. Ooh, excuse me. It stars Alejandro Gomez Monteverde, John Lithgow, Christiana Delana, and David Morse, amongst other actors. So Cabrini is a film, excuse me, it's a film that is likely, might be released in, in select theaters, especially since I imagine, and I assume, that Imaginary and Kung Fu Panda 4 will be released in theaters nationwide. But if I get to see Cabrini, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released on Netflix is a film that's called Damsel. And Damsel is about a dutiful damsel who agrees to marry a handsome prince, only to find the royal family has recruited her as a sacrifice to repay an ancient debt. Thrown into a cave with a fire-breathing dragon, she must rely on her wits and will to survive. And I don't know from the description if Damsel is going to be a live-action film or an animated film. Oh, actually, it looks like it is a live-action film. And the star of the movie is Millie Bobby Brown. But the movie also co-stars Angela Bassett, Ray Winstone, and Juan Carlos Fresnadillo amongst other people. So you got some excellent actors there. Oh, and also another actor who's in this film is Robin Wright, who plays the queen and presumably the mother of Millie Bobby Brown's character. So Damsel is a film that looks pretty damn good. I can't exactly say that it's going to be great, but Millie Bobby Brown has chosen her films carefully. And that's that the same can't be said for other stars of, critically acclaimed series in Millie Bobby Brown's case that series is on also on Netflix Stranger Things and Damsel is a film that I will see and I'll let you know what I think on a future show another movie that is subject to being released in theaters or at least on streaming is a film that's called Night Shift but it is not the same Night Shift that Ron Howard directed back in 1982 that starred Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler. This Night Shift film actually looks like it is on video on demand, so it's unlikely to be on streaming services. And I'm just absolutely making sure that this is a movie, not a TV series. 
But it's about a young woman by the name of Gwen Taylor, who's played by Phoebe Tonkin, who begins to suspect that she is being followed by a dangerous character from her past. And as the night progresses, Gwen's isolation and safety, however, are made all the more worse when she starts to realize that the motel she's at which she's working might also be haunted. So I've seen some films like this before. Five Nights at Freddy's described this plot. It just wasn't a hotel. It was just a run-down Chuck E. Cheese-like establishment. But that film was just flat-out boring, so hopefully Night Shift won't be as boring. But the movie stars Phoebe Tonkin, Christopher Denham, and Patrick Fischler, amongst other people. I don't know if I'm going to be seeing this one because Video On Demand is, at least for me, a little bit of a leap to to see a film. But... It's a film that I will basically look for, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. Another movie that's coming out in limited release is a film that's going to be released in theaters for one day and maybe released on streaming a little while after that. This one is The Ballad of Davy Crockett, and this is a film that is likely an unofficial remake of the film that came out in the 50s from the Walt Disney Company, but I doubt that Disney has anything to do with this film. So maybe it's not exactly a remake, but it's taking the story of Davy Crockett from the public domain. But in this film, long before his last stand at the Alamo, the legendary American hero Davy Crockett, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, just had to say that because I'm in Nashville, fought his way through a wild frontier to rescue his sons from the clutches of an evil land baron. Now, Davy Crockett is obviously a real person, look him up, but I don't know if he actually rescued his sons from an evil land baron. That sounds fictitious to me, and from when I knew the lyrics to the ballad of Davy Crockett, as I referenced them early, just a few moments ago, I don't remember that part of the song. But I guess I'll give this movie a chance if I see it. It's unlikely that I'll go out of my way to see this film in limited release, presumably from Fathom Events, for one day in theaters. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. However, that future show will not be next week's show because next week will be my annual pre-Oscar show where I tell you about all the Oscar nominees, who I think will win, who I think should win, who I think should not have been nominated. That's kind of fun, especially in the best best picture category. But I'm very excited about that. But at the same time, I also have to do my homework for that. Now, you might remember that last week I did my show where I gave you all the films that are nominated for best short film in the documentary, live action, and animation category. And I won't go over those as much as I did last week, but I'm looking very forward to telling you about what I think about the nominees for the show before the Oscars happen. And on March 16th, I'll be giving you my predictions, or rather, not my predictions, but my reactions for what, who I thought did win, who I thought should win, and, and so on and so forth. And it, it's going to be a fun series of shows, but I'm going to put my movie reviews on hold until I do those two specialty shows. But stay with me. It's going to be a great couple of shows the next couple of weeks. I'm always excited for Oscar season, and I look forward to doing the next two shows. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.